You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. What happened last night, Cat? Osborne asked. What happened to you? I don't know, she said, her voice shaking. I'm so sorry. Let's go home. The others nodded and followed her wordlessly. They picked through the storm-tossed foliage, but had to backtrack several times before finding clear passage. When they emerged in the eastern clearing, they found that it, too, was littered with debris and slowly melting hailstones. The forest trail was blocked in many places, and they had to shoulder through the brambles and thorns that abounded alongside the trail. When the forest eventually thinned, they emerged into a bright and sunny afternoon. The valley ahead appeared largely untouched by the storm, and it seemed as if they were drifting out of a nightmare and back into a pleasant reality. Katrin relaxed when she saw a part of her world unblemished but the images of the grove were still vivid. Travel was easier when they were clear of the forest, and they soon approached the stairs. They descended carefully, aware that the slightest misstep could send them tumbling. Strom lost his footage and slipped, frightening them, but he caught himself, and only loose chips of rock dropped over the edge. It took a few minutes for them to calm themselves before continuing at a slower pace, and they were relieved when they finally reached the bottom. The misty air surrounding the falls drove them onward. Once clear of the spray, they found themselves at the shady spot where they had eaten lunch the day before. They stopped and ate the last of their provisions in silence. Familiar sights brought Katrin some comfort, and as the group neared her home, she began to feel almost safe again, but the illusion was shattered when Benjen seemed to materialize from the shadows. He placed a finger to his lips, motioned for them to follow, and led them into a dense stand of pines. Katrin grew even more concerned when she spotted leather bags and packs stacked in an orderly pile, filled nearly to overflowing. The boys followed her gaze and seemed to come to the same cold realization. Something else had gone very wrong. Don't have much time to talk, Benjen said, but I'm so glad you're here. Wendell and I guessed the storm might bring you home early. Couldn't be certain, but it saved me coming to find you, he said just above a whisper. Yesterday afternoon, you see, there was a huge crowd at the spring challenges, even though it looked like bad weather. The games were over before the storm hit, but it was dark when everyone started to leave. Then a swift wind parted the clouds. Don't know who saw it first, but people shouted and cried when the comet appeared, and didn't know what to do with themselves. They just stood and gawked and carried on about it until Nat Dersinger climbed up onto the reviewing stand. He started out rambling on that Istra had returned to the skies of Godsland, 
and Catherine's power meant she was the herald of Istra. Yes, little miss, he called you by name. And now, this morning, over a dozen ships came back early, each saying they had seen foreign ships. The details varied from ship to ship, but they agreed on one thing. A large host of ships is approaching the Godfist. When they heard this, people panicked and started shouting. A bunch of angry citizens went to the farm looking for you, he said, nodding at Katrin. Your father and I had anticipated trouble, and I was already packed when they got there. I hid until they left. Your father knows how to deal with people, and he managed to convince them he'd sent you to the cold caves. He said you were retrieving supplies and would return on the morrow. He told him he'd let them know as soon as you came back, little miss. He need not have bothered with that, for I'm betting the townsfolk are now watching every road and trail that enters Harberton. I'm just glad they didn't post a sentry here at the mountain paths, or we'd have been hard-pressed. Your father wanted to be here, but he knows he's being watched. He sends his love and will join us when he feels it's safe for him to escape. Where are we going? Katrin asked, her voice wavering. High in the mountains, there's a spot Wendell and I found years ago. It's a good hiding place, and it has most of what we'll need to survive. Now we need to get going. We don't want to meet up with the townsfolk, and they could send sentries here at any time. Strom, Osborne, come with us if you wish. But if you decide to stay, you must not tell where we are going. Chase, your father asked me to take you along, and I hope you want to come. He fears for your safety, and thinks you'll be a help to us. I'll go with you, Chase said. Sounds like a long camping trip. I want to go, Osborne added a moment later. Strom seemed to struggle with some inner turmoil, and they watched as they saw him thinking. I hate to leave Miss Maris without a stable boy, and my mother will be without the extra income. But I'm a terrible liar, and I'd surely give you away if someone asked me. I think I should come, too, he said. With that settled, Benjamin repacked the provisions and distributed the bags. Each of them was carrying a great deal when they set off, their burdens heavier than just the weight of their packs. Benjamin led them through the trees, staying as far from the open trail as possible and keeping to the shadows, even though it slowed their pace. They had covered very little distance when the fire bells began ringing. Even from a distance, the cacophony was startling and disconcerting. Benjamin motioned for them to stop, dropped his pack and bag, and climbed a nearby tree. It took him a few moments to gain a clear view of the harbor. Once there, he scanned the horizon. Cursing, he scrambled back to the anxiously waiting group and tried to catch his breath. What did you see? What's happening? Chase asked, fear in his voice. The warning fires are lit, Benjamin said. Which fires? Is the one near the watering hole lit? Strom asked anxiously. All of them are lit, Benjamin said. The Godfist is under attack. 
His words seemed to linger in the air, and a feeling of impending doom crept across the group. Benjamin cocked his head to one side as if listening intently. We need to go. Now. But my father, Katrin protested. Your father can take care of himself, little miss. He'd wring my neck if I let you go back in there after him. You know he would. You're in far more danger than he is. Now go, he said firmly, his tone leaving no room for argument. He led them on a meandering trek from shadow to shadow. They moved as quietly as they could, but every noise seemed to echo across the valley. They heard no sounds of pursuit, but they would have had to struggle to hear anything over the pounding of their hearts and their labored breathing. Rather than head for the falls, Benjamin angled north and east, and when they reached the eastern ridgeline, he started up the incline. It was a difficult climb, but it would take them into the neighboring valley, Chinalpa. It was narrower than the fertile Pinook River Valley. Bramble and thorn brushes grew thick, and few ventured there. After having been hidden by the shadows, Katrin felt as if the whole world could see her on the face of the mountain. They climbed in anxious silence, occasionally disturbing loose rocks, which bounced down the steep incline with what sounded like a terrible clatter. Benjamin occasionally stopped to scan the valley for signs of pursuit, but he saw none. Sweaty and tired, they crested the ridgeline and stared into the valley below. The descent into the Chinalpa Valley was not as steep as their climb had been. Benjamin continued to lead, moving carefully down the ridgeline at an angle to make their descent more gradual. Daylight was failing them, and he cautioned them to beware of loose rock and scree. A few tenacious trees growing out of the rock face steadied them in treacherous places. It was early twilight when they finally reached the valley floor, tired, sore, and in need of rest. I know you would all like to stop, but we have to get as far away as possible before we camp for the night, Benjamin said, although it was unnecessary to tell them what they already knew. Katrin trudged along behind him, not really paying attention to where she was going, just following the body in front of her and concentrating on staying upright. She was exhausted, her muscles cramped, and she clutched her side as she walked to try and ease the aching. Staying near the ridgeline where the vegetation was sparse, Benjamin seemed to be searching for something. Are we looking for something specific? Katrin asked in an irritated tone. She knew she sounded childish and contrary even as the words left her lips. There's a place up ahead where your father and I once made camp. It provides some shelter, but it is primarily defensible should the need arise. I don't think we'll be found tonight, but it's better to be prepared for the improbable and sometimes the impossible. You'll have to trust me that it's the best place for us to stop, Benjamin said, continuing to walk. Darkness settled over them and slowed their progress. The skies were overcast, and Katrin could barely make out the moon and comet behind the clouds. 
She could feel the energy enveloping her. But it was strange and frightening, and she closed herself to it. Still, it pulled at the edges of her mind, promising warmth, security, and power. Are you all right? Little miss? Benjamin asked. I'm just tired and not feeling well, she replied, feeling guilty for telling only part of the truth. But she wasn't going to tell them about her strange yearnings for power. She wouldn't blame any of them for thinking she was a witch, and at this point, she was decidedly unsure herself. We're just about there. We'll be resting soon, I promise. Just a little farther, Benjen said, and soon they approached a huge split in the rock face. An enormous slab of stone leaned against the valley wall, leaving a gap several paces wide. It was open on both ends, providing two routes of escape. They filed into the gap and dropped their packs. Chase began to set up a fire circle, but Benjamin waved him from the task. No fire tonight, I'm afraid. It's just too risky. But that did little to improve the atmosphere. They ate a cold meal in relative silence. Then Benjamin urged them to get some sleep, saying he would take the first watch. Deep breathing and occasional snores soon surrounded Katrin but she could not sleep. Despite her weariness, she lay awake, wondering if she would ever feel safe again. From high on a hill, Wendell watched the Jean come, frozen in morbid fascination as what looked like a wave of fire and destruction rolled through Harberton in the lowlands. He'd come here to survey the situation, to reassure himself that his friends, neighbors, and countrymen would be fine and that going after Katrin would jeopardize no one. Watching the horror unfold before him, he was faced with a new question. Would staying to defend his homeland make any difference? His awareness was flooded with a vision of Katrin, hunted by the Jean, vulnerable, and calling out for him. Never before had Wendell ever been so conflicted. He felt as if his spirit were being torn apart, ripped into pieces by a decision no one should ever have to make. He felt Elsa looking down on him, and he wept as he shamed her and shamed himself. His feet had taken him into the barn where he had already, subconsciously and automatically, started saddling Charger. From beneath a pile of hay, he pulled his portion of the supplies he and Benjen had stashed away. From one of the bags protruded a painful reminder, a physical representation of his guilt and weakness. Elsa's sword reminded him of all the things he was not of all his failings and shortcomings. It challenged him to save his countrymen and find Katrin. Elsa would have saved them all. Wendell found himself in the saddle, ready to ride away from his farm, his friends, his entire life. 
Just as he gave Charger his heels, he caught movement from the corner of his vision. Turning his mount with his knees, he saw a mounted soldier closing on a single horse cart. Driving the cart was Eliana Grisk, a woman of more than eighty summers. She was as sharp as a sword and took no guff from anyone, but she was more than overmatched. Her horse was little more than a pony, and he was weary with age. He labored to pull her at a little more than a walk, and the soldier's horse showed only the beginnings of a sweat. Wendell cried out in dismay. His mind had been made up, his course set, but now he found himself swayed. Reaching back, he grabbed Elsa's sword and released a battle cry that had not been heard in many seasons. As he charged toward the approaching soldier, he saw the look of relief in Eliana's face. She believed he would save her. Life had given Wendell no other choice. There was only one way he could ever live with himself. He had to save them all. In the darkness, all of Benjen's fears came to life and stalked him from every direction, waiting for him to let down his guard for even a moment. He was soft and slow with age, and he was unprepared for what lay ahead. Too long he had lived an easy life, forgetting the lessons his father and grandfather had taught him. He had always thought there would be more time to prepare time to train his children to face the coming storm. But now the storm had come early, and his work was not even begun. Things most people thought of as legend were now here as flesh and blood, wood and iron, pain and fire. The masters had always said it would only cause a panic if the truth was known to all, and thus they kept their knowledge hidden. The citizens of the Godfist would pay for the master's folly and his. Chapter 6 Men are fickle creatures, capable of kindness and compassion, yet fascinated by the basest atrocities. Argus Kind, Jean Executioner when Katrin pulled herself from her bedroll, all but Benjen still slept. Their shelter blocked much of the morning light, and the air was still cool in the shadows. Benjen stood at the southern opening of the crevasse, his silhouette standing out in stark contrast to the bright landscape beyond. Katrin padded silently to his side and put her arms around him. He gave a start at her touch and she knew he must have been deep in thought since he was usually impossible to sneak up on. Sorry, she said. It's all right, little miss. You just startled me. Not just that. I'm sorry about all of this. I never meant to cause so much trouble. I'm not even sure what I did. But now I've dragged all of you into my mess, she said, and... She leaned her head against his shoulder for comfort. He patted her on the head and guided her into the sunlight. None of this is your doing, Katrin. 
She looked up at him, surprised he would call her by name. She was so accustomed to Little Miss that her name sounded odd on his lips. We live in times of change, and all of us will be affected, whether we wish it or not, he continued. But it seems everywhere I go, trouble follows. It doesn't seem safe to be near me, she said, wanting to tell Benjamin about the destruction of the grove, but she could not bring herself to speak of it. You can look at it that way if you wish, but I suggest you concentrate on what you can do to make the situation better. You cannot change what has already happened, but you can prepare for the future. I can't say what this day will bring, but I vow to face it with my head high and my wits about me. I suggest you do the same. You can wallow in self-pity if you like, but it'll only bring you misery. There's a greatness in you that you don't realize yet, Katrin, so you must not lose hope. We'll get through this together and be stronger for it. I know you're right. I'm sorry. And no more sorries from you, he said, shaking his finger at her. I'll strike a bargain with you. If you promise not to intentionally hurt me, and I promise not to intentionally hurt you, then there'll be no more need for another I'm sorry between us. Do I have your word? You have my word, she said with a small smile. And I give mine, he replied with a flourish and a bow. He smiled and touched her shoulder. Come on, let's go make the best of things. Katrin felt a great deal of comfort from their talk. He'd forgiven whatever mistakes she might have made, and now maybe she could forgive herself. She made a conscious effort to tell herself she was forgiven, and was surprised at how it eased her guilt and anxiety. She acknowledged that most people never intended to hurt her. Her pain had been an unintentional byproduct of their actions. A great weight seemed to lift from her soul and she decided to focus on positive things. Taking a deep breath, she released her anger in a long sigh. A renewed Katrin strode back into the crevasse with confidence. After they broke camp, Katrin helped the others stow their bedrolls and check their packs. Benjamin led them by memory, and they often had to backtrack when the way was blocked. Numerous game trails crossed the valley floor, and he seemed to have trouble finding distinguishable landmarks. By noon, it seemed they had covered very little distance. Chase, Strom, and Osborne talked quietly among themselves. They were worried about their families and the other people they had left behind. They speculated about the invaders, who they might be, and why they would attack. Katrin listened in silence. She ached to know her father was safe, and she tried to have faith. Her mental image of him was one of strength and unbending integrity, and bringing that image to mind soothed her. She could not picture a man of such goodness and fortitude ever being in danger. She clung to that illusion. I heard said some of the ships bore the symbol of a man and a woman in an embrace 
sounds like the mark of a Jean warship to me. As much as I hate to speculate, I fear invaders have come from the Greatland, Benjen said. The Greatland? Strom snorted. I thought that existed only in fairy tales and legends. There's been no other contact with other civilizations for thousands of years. Only the old texts mention the Greatland and the Firstland, so what reason do we have to believe they even exist? I assure you, the Greatland does indeed exist, and the danger presented by the Jean Empire is all too real, Benjen said. You talk like you've been there, Strom said. That's because I have been there, but that's a story for another time. What's important now is that you know the Jean Empire has not forgotten about us. They believe the Herald of Istra will be born on the Godfist and will be revealed through great acts of power. The Jean prophecies say the Herald will betray them and destroy their nation. Or something like that. It's hard to tell just what they mean. I believe they'll go to great lengths to capture and kill anyone they believe could be the Herald. As much as I hate to admit it, I think Nat Derzinger was right. They've come to destroy us in a desperate attempt to save themselves. They'll not find the Godfist an easy place to conquer, though. The Masters and a few select families have been making preparations for decades. You knew they were coming? Osborne asked, incredulous. In a sense, we knew. But our information was thousands of years old, and it was nearly impossible to tell truth from fairy tale. Huge amounts of information were lost during the Great Wars and the Purge, and no one knew if the prophecies were anything more than legend. But we did know the Jean believed them to be sacred and quite real. We did our best to prepare for an invasion, and seeing their ships over the years kept us vigilant. But we thought we'd have much more time before it would happen. I guess our calculations were wrong, he said, stopping to untangle himself from a thorn bush. I don't understand, Chase interjected. How could you calculate when they would attack? It's a long story, and rather complicated, but I'll try to explain. About twenty years ago, we heard the Jean Church had started quoting certain scriptures again. The ones that tell the Jean their duty is to fight in the name of Istra. The scriptures also say Istra's return will be the divine signal to embark on their holy war. We know they calculate the Vestran cycle to be about 3,017 years, but by our reckoning... It has only been 2,983 years since Istra departed. I still don't understand, Chase persisted. I thought Istra was a goddess. What do you mean she's returned to the skies? All I've seen in the sky is a comet. A long time ago, people made up stories to explain things they couldn't understand, Benjen said. When a comet storm lasted over a hundred years, and seemed to grant otherworldly powers, they glorified it and named it Istra, goddess of the night. The comet we saw was most likely the first of many to come. 
It's said that during the Istran noon, some 75 years into the storm, there can be as many as a thousand comets visible in the sky on any night. Some of the old tales refer to the first comet as the Herald of Istra, but others say it will be a person born here on the Godfist. I'm not really certain what I believe. He called for a quick break, and while the young people rested, he walked a short distance in each direction. He was pushing his way into some heavy underbrush when he exclaimed, Aha! I knew we were going in the right direction. He emerged from the underbrush with a gleam in his eyes. What did you find? Katrin asked, and he beamed at her. When your father and I came this way, we left a few markings in case we ever wanted to find our way back. Beneath the underbrush and a thick layer of moss, I just found one of them. We carved it deep, and luckily it survived the passage of time. Our destination is due east, about a day's walk from here. They were encouraged that they were on the right path, and glad they would not have to carry their packs much farther. Benjamin's excitement urged him to move on, this time leading them on a much straighter path. Try to leave the forest undisturbed, he said. Any sign we were here will help trackers. Now there were fewer times they had to double back, and as they ascended a sloping hill, the forest became less dense, allowing them to move with greater speed. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.